0: Open up with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and I need to start with an apology. I misspoke last week. Um, I said that this week we would be looking at the second part of, of this sentence. It's, there's this really long Greek sentence uh, from verses 3 through 12, and then uh, I sat down to look at like what I'd planned out to preach on today, and I looked at it, and I was like, oh man, we're not even going through the whole of the second half of the, the sentence today, So we're going through the third, fourth of the sentence today. I think that math is right. And we'll go through the fourth, fourth next week. It's okay. You don't have to know fractions to come to Orchard. It really is. All that to say, I misspoke and I recognize it. I want to start off with a quote. I I like reading people smarter than me, listening to how people, which is not a small group of people, and, and looking at how different people view the world and learning from them. This quote comes from uh, an interesting source. You may have heard of this guy. His name is Bertrand Russell. Uh, Bertrand Russell's probably, maybe arguably, one of the world's most famous atheists. And he said this in a speech, I believe it was 1927, and, and you can get the gist of the speech right from the title, Why I Am Not a Christian. That was the name of his speech. He said this in this speech, It is a most astonishing thing that people can believe that this world, with all the things that are in it, with all its defects, should be the best that omnipotence and omniscience has been able to produce in millions of years. I really cannot believe it. One of his key points, and he makes many in the speech, I'm not going to go through them. But one of his key points is, how can there be a good God? who is powerful over all things, knows all things, when the world is so messed up. And there is implicit, and and actually as we'll get to in a moment, explicit, the idea that people could do better. Toward the end of his speech, he says this, gives his solution. We want to stand upon our own feet. And look fair and square at the world, its good facts, its bad facts, its beauties, and its ugliness. See the world as it is and be not afraid of it. Conquer the world by intelligence. And not merely by being slavishly subdued by the terror that comes from it. A good world needs knowledge Kindliness and courage. It does not need a regretful hankering after the past or a fettering of free intelligence by the words uttered long ago by ignorant men. It needs a fearless outlook and a free intelligence. It needs hope for the future, not looking back all the time toward a past that is dead, which we trust will be far surpassed by the future that our intelligence can create. Today, we're going to be talking about some of the ugliness that he's referring to. How do we deal with that as Christians? How do we deal with the fact that this is not what we would consider a perfect world? That there is suffering and hardship in this world. And I want to start by agreeing with Mr. Russell. We need to, as Christians, deal honestly with suffering. It is not the Christian faith to merely ignore suffering. It's not the Christian faith to just put on a happy face and say, oh, it doesn't really matter. Everything's going to work out okay in the end. That's not the way that Scripture deals with suffering. It's not the way we should deal with suffering. However, I think that in many ways, Mr. Russell is guilty of the very things he's accusing us of. Well, things will get better. I'm just going to look forward to this time that all these things will go away and we will make things better. We will say, as we'll look at in a minute, It's when Christ comes back. As the gospel spreads, people come to know the Lord, they get saved, and one day Christ is coming back. That is our hope. Yes, we look forward to a future when this suffering will be erased and things will be made right, but he is doing the same thing. He just has a different path to get there. What he's saying is between this world of suffering and some unforeseen future when suffering will be made right, what we will do is work hard. We'll put our intelligence to work. We'll use science, he says. here's the thing, science doesn't have a very good track record either. I think at the very least we have to be honest that for all the good that science has done, for all the social ills, economic woes, maybe physical suffering that science has alleviated, it has at the very least created just as much more. So if that is his worldview with which he's going to judge things, if suffering remains and is not diminished, therefore that worldview is not true, he needs to own up to his own worldview and say, well, then yours doesn't work either because science is not leading us into a better future. It, I think best case scenario is simply leading us to a different future. In some ways better, in many ways worse. I also think that Mr. Russell completely ignores and misunderstands how scripture deals with suffering. You see, I believe and I've come to believe more and more deeply throughout the, period, the time of my life that the longer I look at Scripture, the more I understand about God, the better I can look at suffering, admit that it is there, that it is awful, that it is hard, but also to see that God has a purpose over, in, and through all of it. It is not an easy thing to do. We must deal honestly with suffering. And I truly believe that only the gospel of Jesus Christ can both admit there is a good God, yet a messed up sinful world. But also have true hope that God in his plan to send his son to die on the cross for our sins has both expressed his goodness and dealt with the evil and the suffering. Only in the gospel, I believe, do we have what can truly deal with both the goodness of God and the sinfulness and messiness of the world in which we find ourselves. So what, as Christians, should we do about suffering? I think, as I said earlier, I think too many Christians ignore it. We pray a prayer. We, in our mind, get a ticket to heaven. We think, well... I'm out of here. doesn't really matter what happens to this world. And so we just ignore too often suffering. I think other Christians take a different point of view. We wallow in it. Oh, woe is me. Everything's turning against me. I can't believe the world is going the way it is. Things used to be so much better. Everything's falling apart now. And I think in many ways we undermine our own faith by not applying it to the present situations and saying there is a God. He is on his throne. There is a gospel that saves. There is a savior and a king who is returning. So we can't wallow in suffering either. We need to have a proper biblical perspective. There is a good God. Humanity has sinned and is pretty messed up. Yet salvation through Jesus Christ is available. That's a Christian perspective on suffering. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9 today. And there are three things I just want to put in your head as we walk through for you to look for. There are three things that Peter's going to point out, three truths. Number one is that suffering should be expected in the Christian life. How'd you like that on a brochure? You know, you're going to go somewhere and go, go to a wonderful Uh, retreat somewhere or a great hotel or resort and they put right on the front. The food's going to be bad every once in a while. The the bed might be a little lumpy. I mean, who's going to sign up for that? But at the same time, I am always so impressed with God's word because it doesn't sugarcoat things. There is suffering. There are difficulties and we need to come to grips with that. So number one, First important truth, suffering should be expected in the Christian life. He says, you may have had to suffer grief. The second thing, suffering because of faith has a purpose. God has an intent in it. It is not wasted. It is not just something merely to endure. There is a benefit that comes from the suffering. Oh, we don't want to hear that. Number three, faith gives us perspective on suffering that brings, and this is huge in this passage, that brings joy, even in the middle of the suffering. I want you to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6. And then we're going to jump down to verse 8, because there are two bookends to this passage that, that really summarize where Peter is going with all of this. And again, this whole passage from really going all the way back to 3 uh, verse 3 that we covered last week from 3 to 6 but from 3 down to 12 it's all about suffering going through hardships that's what first peter is all about but he, he bookends this, and he tells us how to have this perspective. So look briefly at verse 6. It says, In all this you greatly rejoice. And then if you skip down to verse 8, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Peter's whole conversation here in, in this brief section is bookended by joy. Can we as Christians have a faith that is so deep that we can look suffering right in the face, say it's hard, but I have joy even in the middle of it. That is a deep and difficult faith. The passage begins and ends with joy. And all of this is in the context of suffering. So let's look through this Brief passage, starting in verse 6, and look at faith in suffering. Again, we can't just ignore suffering. We can't just say, well, it might kind of, sort of, maybe I hope you don't have to go through it. We'll pray against it, but maybe every once in a while, by chance, it'll come. No, Peter has none of that. He starts right in in verse 6. He says, in all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In all this. You greatly rejoice. Now, what's he talking about there? You need to go back and listen to my last sermon. Um, But no, you can go back to the the previous couple verses there. Verses three through six is what he's talking about there, or rather three through five. In all this, the truth that we have salvation through Jesus Christ. So that's the context of this passage. We have, through God's great mercy that saves us through Jesus Christ, we have a present living hope and a future certainty of salvation through Jesus Christ. So he's bringing that truth in. He says, as you face suffering, hold on to this truth because this is the source of your joy. Some say that joy differs from happiness Because happiness depends on circumstances and joy does not depend on circumstances. I've I've used that myself. I agree with it. But I think it's helpful to look at it and say joy depends on a greater, more significant, more impactful circumstance that is always true for every Christian at any time. Our ultimate circumstance as we walk through this life, whether we're going through good times or bad times, the ultimate context of our circumstance is we have been saved by Jesus Christ. That's the source of our joy, no matter what else comes. Scripture actually commands joy. It is a commandment. It is not a, hey, if things are going well and you happen to think about it, you might want to consider maybe being a little bit happy. It's a command. Psalm 37, verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Galatians 5, 22 lists joy as part of the fruit of the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 24, Paul tells the Corinthians he's working with them for their joy. He expects joy to be the overflow of their heart because of the effort that he is pouring into. Joy and salvation is always, for us as Christians, the greater context of any suffering that we go through. It's the perspective that we need as we endure difficult times. But we also need to understand in that context of joy, we must expect suffering. I want to be careful how I say that. I don't want you to get the impression that I'm commanding, telling, exhorting anyone to run after suffering. That's very different. I'm not saying seek suffering. I'm saying expect it. It's a very different thing. Look at what he says in the rest of verse six, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We've spoken a little bit throughout the series about the struggles that Peter's readers were going through. We looked at in shortly after first Peter is written, Christians are going to suffer immensely. Uh, Nero is the, the emperor of Rome and he's going to just go completely off his rocker and persecute Christians in horrible, horrific, awful ways. That persecution has not quite broken out yet, but there's the beginnings of it. There's the inklings of Peter saying, or I'm sorry, of of the culture looking at the Christians and saying, you are out of sync with us. You believe things and are holding on to things that we don't believe. And the Christians are looking at the culture saying, I can't join you in some of the things, some of the directions that you're going in. So I have to step aside. They lived in a culture where when you would enter the marketplace, right before you, you kind of came into the main marketplace, there was a little, maybe a statue or a figurine or a fountain and maybe a little bit of incense or something. You had to just offer up just a little token of worship to the local town's god or goddess or possibly the emperor himself. You had to do that to go in to buy things. You had to do that to go in to sell things. Now, imagine you're a Christian. Some people would say, no big deal. Well, just that's just what you have to do to get by. But other Christians said, no, I can't do that. I believe in the Lord Most High. I can't enter into that. And so imagine the situation. You're there and you say, I can't do this. So you just walk on by. What happens to the heads in the marketplace? Did he just, did, did she just walk right by did you see so-and-so? They didn't offer up the the sacrifice to Artemis. They they didn't give the alms to Zeus. They don't believe that the emperor is a god. What are people going to say? Take it a step farther. What if somebody looks at you and you've gone there to sell your, your goods? Maybe you're growing watermelons. And you go in with your watermelons and they, they oh, aren't you the one that didn't, you you won't Offer that, that sacrifice? Oh no, I can't do that. I believe in Jesus Christ. I don't think I can buy your watermelons. Or somebody might say, I, I, I you you go in the market and you say, I need to buy some bread, I need to buy some grain, I need to buy something, and they say, Well, I can't sell to you because you don't believe what I believe. That's where it was starting. To go into the homes and be shunned, to lose out as we looked at last week in their inheritance. Their whole future, and yet their parents would start saying, I I can't give this to you. I'm going to instead give it only to your brothers or your sister. I can't give you your inheritance. People were beginning to suffer in these ways. The other thing that's important to understand, in the context of Peter, and I think all of this applies to suffering in general, right? People struggle. Cancer is just a horrible thing illness, sickness, accidents, those are difficult things. Hunger, there's a lot of suffering in this world. What Peter is specifically talking about in this book is suffering because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Now, again, I think these things apply to suffering as a Christian going through just difficult things. But one of the things that Peter is making clear, and his readers already understood this, their suffering was actually coming because of their faith. Their faith was causing their suffering. But we don't want to hear that. We don't want to think about that. Oh, wait a minute, if you're a Christian, everything will be beautiful and wonderful and and you'll be happy and wealthy and wise and everything will be great. You'll get the best job and the best car and the best house. And there are so many Christian so-called leaders spreading that false truth around the world. Peter will have none of that. His point is that if you are a true Christian, that fact right there will, at some point, put you out of line, out of sync, and in opposition to the ways of this world. And maybe, Christians that are gathered here, maybe you felt that at times. Some in big ways, some in small ways. But he gives us a couple important ideas about suffering here. The first is that suffering is limited. He says, now for a little while. That's an important aspect as a Christian in suffering. Whatever we are going through in the moment, whether that thing is going to last five minutes, five years, or 50 years, it is still in light of eternity a little while. Our present suffering always has an expiration date. No matter what you're going through, it will not last forever. God's design, God's plan for you is bigger than that situation. Christ is coming back. That suffering will cease in one way or another. He is working out His plan in your life. So, the first thing He tells us about suffering is that it's limited. The second is that it is expected. You may have had to suffer. The world believes in self. Bertrand Russell talked about that. If we could just apply our intellect, our, our science, our methodology, our technology, if we could just apply that properly, things will work out better. It doesn't work. For a couple hundred years now, that worldview has been the dominant worldview in our culture. And again, I don't, I don't want to make you think that I'm against technology. I mean, I've got a smartphone in my pocket, I'm preaching off of a computer. I love techno- love. I have a love-hate relationship with technology. <laughs> I could talk to you sometime about the whole realigned Rochester conference and the sign-ups online, and what a nightmare it's been. But, getting through it, okay? I am not anti-science. At all. It, it amazes me. Okay, this is how much of a geek I am, ready? Last night, there was a live telecast by SpaceX. Anybody watch this? I am the geekiest person here. Did you? You're my man. (laughs) Thank you. Elon Musk stood there with a a shining silver starship behind him that has the potential to carry a hundred people to Mars. It was like, this is awesome. Okay, so I'm totally geeking out. I am not against science. I want to be very clear. What I am against is the pervasive idea that humanity, by our own power, our own knowledge, our own abilities, is going to fix what's wrong with this world. I am absolutely against that. Because again, the track record... Is very poor. The same science that has cured disease helped eliminated many types of suffering, has also brought us two world wars, many other diseases, and various social struggles around the world. So we need to understand that in this world where we're interacting with people that say and believe in their heart, if I just work a little bit harder, I can do better. And then we're interacting with a culture that brings that to more of a a society scale or maybe a global scale. If we as humanity just work a little harder, we can do better. And then the gospel comes along and Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. What we get by working as humanity, putting forth our best effort, what we earn is death you don't think that's going to put you out of line with the culture of this world, out of sync, and cause suffering in some way, shape, or form, then I think maybe you're misunderstanding the gospel of Jesus Christ. People don't like to hear, I don't like to hear, you are wrong. But the gospel starts with the message, we are wrong. But Christ has provided a way. So suffering is, Needs and must be expected. The third thing we see is that suffering is purposeful. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had. You must, you should, there will be suffering. You know, I was thinking about this, and it's interesting because I was talking to somebody about reading Psalm 23 to their parents right before service, and Psalm 23 popped into my head because it's an interesting passage. Psalm 23 is the great shepherd psalm, right? The Lord is my shepherd, shall not want, makes me lie down beside green pastures. So in the shepherd's psalm, it starts out with all these wonderful things that God as our shepherd does for us. He is leading us, he is guiding us. But then you get to this passage, even though I walk through, some translation have the valley of the shadow of death, NIV has the darkest valley. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Why is God with us in the darkest valley? And, and I've always kind of taken this as, well, when I stumble and I lose my way and I'm lost, and there my great shepherd is still with me. But that's not the pattern of that psalm. The pattern of the psalm is, why are the sheep in the dark valley? Because the shepherd led them there. Because as a destination beyond that valley. And that was the path to get there. That's what I believe is going on in that psalm. Can we have a faith that looks at our Lord and our God and says, I'll trust you to lead me through this? Does that make the suffering good? Should we just say, I'm so glad I'm suffering. No, man, it stings. It's hard. But to look at God and say, this is hard, but you are good, and I will keep on trusting you. The final thing in this verse. He says it is in all kinds of trials. You know, we like to talk about diversity in our world, and our cultures, and it's good because there's just a richness in the many different people, group, people groups. I, I'm not as comfortable applying diversity where Peter does here, but he talks about a diversity in sufferings. There are many different types of sufferings. And this is important, friends, because I think so often we use our suffering to judge someone else's. Or we use theirs to judge ours. There are many different ways that we can suffer for our faith. We should never use our own situation to judge someone else. And we should never just think that there's one way that we suffer, and that's the only way. I mean, I mean how many of us would say, well, if somebody ever put a gun to my head and said, give up Jesus or die, and we say, oh, I know what I would do in that instance. And I don't know if we do know what we would do. But what about in the subtle ways? I mean, think, this is coming from Peter, right? I mean, he's gathered around kind of a, a campfire, a, a burning um, fire in the middle of the night, and it's cold because Jesus is on trial, and somebody comes up to him and just says, you were with him, weren't you? That's a subtle suffering, right? Subtle moment. In his mind, he might think, oh, I'm totally with Jesus, believe in everything he's doing. But in that moment, what did he do? I don't even know him. He gave in. Sometimes it's the subtle suffering that is the most devious. The gospel gives us a perspective on suffering. There is no suffering in this world that we can face that can eclipse the joy that we have through Jesus Christ. But why, if God is good, does he still allow that suffering? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7 Begins to help us to answer that question. He talks about faith being refined. Look at verse seven there. These have come. It's talking about the sufferings. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He mentions two purposes for our suffering in this passage. The first is a a refining or a purifying. This is the process through which metals, precious metals, would be put through to remove the impurities from them, the dross. The famous picture is a silversmith heating up silver to the point when the impurities bubble up to the surface and they can skim it off. There's a famous illustration of, you know, someone asking, how do you know when it's done? How do you know when it's pure? And the silversmith says, when I can see my face in the silver. That reflection, what a beautiful picture of our faith in Jesus Christ. Suffering turns up the heat on our faith to refine it and to purify it. I've shared with you uh, before one of the experiences I had as a kid when I went to Disney World. I was, I don't know, eight. We'll go with that. And we went to Space Mountain. Anybody ever ridden Space Mountain? Horrific ride. (laughs) Let's put a twisty, turny roller coaster in pitch black darkness and tell kids to go on it. Just something straight out of a nightmare. No, it's actually really cool. If you ever get to go there, don't, kids, it's, it's cool. No. Um, so here I was, my first time on this roller coaster, I screamed and cried so much that when I got off, the workers came running saying, what is wrong with this child? That's how bad it was. I am not overstating that. I really am not. My poor father got off with me. I think he was so embarrassed. They were so concerned that like I was physically hurt or something because I was freaking out. And I often look back to that as why? Why was I so scared? And I remember vividly throughout the ride there were these handles and they were like made out of stainless steel so they were very slippery and my hands get very sweaty. And as I'm holding on to that, we're going around the turns and and the twists. I keep sliding off of these handles. And in my mind, I thought, I'm going to die. I can't hold on. If my hand slips, I'm flying out of this into oblivion and I'm dying. That's why I was so terrified. That ride showed me I was not strong enough to hold on in that ride. Now, after I got off that ride and I calmed down for a while, An hour or two later, I talked to my dad, I did, and I said, Dad, I want to do it again. (laughs) You can imagine the dad's speech that I got, are you sure, you know, and I'm thinking in his mind, he's thinking, I don't want to go through that again. (laughs) But I had a very philosophical awakening experience in between the first ride and the second ride. My little brain went through this pattern of thinking about the car that we were sitting in. I think there was a a seatbelt, a bar, and then I was sitting in front of my father that was holding me. And even in my young, immature mind, something clicked that said, even if I let go, I would still be held secure. It wasn't actually my job to keep myself safe on the ride. Now let me help you to understand how this relates to suffering and purifying. Suffering has a way of eroding away or pointing out the weakness of the things that we are holding on to that we think are secure. And that is a terrifying experience. Because our little brains are telling us, if I lose this, I lose everything. And Jesus keeps telling us, I'm holding on to you. I'm holding on to you stronger than you can ever imagine. And there are times when we have to lose those things that we're holding on to to realize how secure we are in Jesus Christ. That's how suffering refines our faith. But there's another thing that suffering does in this passage talks about the provenness of your faith. See, when you heat up that metal that has been refined, that has been purified, and you heat it up, and nothing comes to the surface, you realize that that gold that you were sold that somebody said is pure, it is. It actually is pure. The silver, it it really is pure. I've proven it now that it is pure. Testing, suffering, not only refines our faith, but it shows us the strength of our faith another story from not so long ago. When my wife and I endured a miscarriage, and we learned about the loss of that baby, I'll never forget the first thing that popped into my mind. And I I hesitated to share this with you, because this is not me patting myself on the back. This is me being awe, in awe and amazement at what God has done first thing that came into my mind was Job 121. The Lord gave. The Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I remember sitting in a staff meeting at a church and the worship pastor was talking about that name or that song. We sing that song here. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And the worship pastor at that church just said, oh, it's such a trite and shallow song. Every verse goes through things. Are when things are happy and wonderful, I'll bless the Lord. And then the second part of the verse is and when things everything falls apart and I'm suffering, I will still bless the Lord. And he just said, oh, it's just happy, clappy, and it ignores true suffering. And I thought, no. No, that's the statement of faith. No matter what comes, I will bless the name of the Lord. And I will tell you, as a Christian, I struggle too, just like you. And, and there are so many times that I wonder, do I... Do I really believe what I say I believe? Is my faith really what I think it is? And that is a moment that God has given me in my life. I would not have chosen it, and I would never want to go back to it. But it is a moment God has chosen to show me in my life. When everything was stripped away, my faith was there. And that moment has strengthened every moment after. Because when I start wondering and doubting, I remember, I believe. I believe in a God that goes beyond my circumstances, beyond what I can see. When the wind and the waves of this world batter against our lives, shattering things that we're holding on to that we think are important, but we see our faith remain strong, it is a huge encouragement. This was one of my greatest struggles in youth ministry. Because youth, in all their wonderful inquisitiveness, they have so many questions, great questions. I love the questions of youth. What they don't have is the perspective that struggling in trials. And youth, I'm not saying you haven't gone through anything difficult. It's very different, okay? But years and years and years of perspective built up, saying, I've seen God faithful here and here and here and here. I remember hearing... An old preacher once, and somebody said, what's different now that you're older? And his answer was, I'm just not afraid of as many things. He said, because I've been through so much, and I've seen God be so good. Suffering both purifies and proves our faith. A faith that, according to Peter, is of greater worth than gold. I wonder how many of his recipients were losing some of their earthly possessions. Losing jobs, homes, inheritance. And I wonder if that's in his mind. Guys, your faith is of greater worth than gold. The joy and security we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ is truly greater than anything this world has to offer. And he talks about where it leads, that it may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Here we have that eternal perspective brought back into the picture. One day, we will stand in the very presence of the Lord God Almighty and look back on our suffering. And I personally do not believe in that moment we will just laugh and say, oh, that was just silly. I think we'll look back and say, that was hard. I remember that. But I truly believe in that moment we will equally say, and even greater, we will say, it is nothing compared to the present joy of being in the presence of my Savior. I believe we will see the goodness, the difficult goodness of Christ's mercy in and through all of it. And in that moment, we will not say, look at how I stood firm. Look at how awesome my faith is. In that moment, we will say, look at how good my God is. He will get all the praise and all the glory. Suffering refines our faith. Frankly, I think one of the weaknesses of modern Christianity, especially modern American Christianity, is that for some reason we have bought into the notion that we are to avoid suffering at all costs that it is our right to not suffer. Now, I'm not saying, as I said earlier, I'm not saying that we should run after suffering, that we should just go for suffering. Oh, I hope that I suffer. That's foolishness. But we should admit our faith in Jesus Christ is out of sync with and out of line with this world. One commentator said it this way, in America, we have in many ways been enjoying a home team advantage. When we went out on the field of our life, we we could understand that the people in the stands were largely encouraging us and on our side and, and in some way, shape, or form, believed and supported what we believe and support. And he was writing about the changing culture and he said, that's not the truth anymore. We are now, as Christians, the visiting team. And the people in the stands are no longer cheering for us. I think it's a good analogy. I think the problem is, as Christians, we should have never, ever have gotten into our head that we were the home team whatsoever. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. We must acknowledge that suffering is inevitable in the Christian life. We need to focus on the work that Christ is doing in us in that suffering. Rather than just praying for the suffering to be removed, can we have the faith to pray, Father, purify me through this suffering. As we pray for our persecuted brothers and Christians around the world, because they are facing what Peter in the early church would face later, many of our brothers and sisters in Christ are facing that right now. They're not just losing a little bit of money or favor, they're losing lives. And as we pray for them, I wonder as Christians if it reveals our theology of suffering. Oh, Father, save them from the suffering. And that's good. It's not wrong to pray that. But could we go a little bit farther and say, Father, teach them in the suffering? Use the suffering as a demonstration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Could we pray that for ourselves? Rather than, Father, remove this experience to say, Father, bring glory to yourself even through me, even through my suffering, as i go through this that's a hard hard prayer but that is the perspective of faith and that's where peter ends this passage verses 8 and 9 though you have not seen him you love him and even though you do not see him now you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy for you are receiving the end result of your faith the salvation of your souls peter ends where he began perspective of faith that holds on even through suffering, holding on to joy, that we have something greater than what we're going through. Peter's readers were like us. They didn't see Christ. They weren't there. This is not the early church in Jerusalem that was around when Jesus Christ was preaching and resurrected. These are people that never met Jesus Christ in his earthly ministry. All they have is the testimony of Peter, the apostles, and others. Just like us, we have the testimony of the New Testament. I wasn't there. Pretty sure you weren't there. Hebrews 11, verse 1 says, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for, and assurance of what we do not see. Faith is looking beyond what we see and constantly reminding ourselves this that we see is not the whole picture. There is a God who is at work. I wasn't there when Jesus died on the cross, but I believe it. I wasn't there when he rose from the dead, but I believe it. That's faith, holding on to something that we don't see right now. But see, the difficulty of suffering is that it is so obvious and so in our face, it just screams right in front of us, look at me, look at me constantly, think about how you're feeling, think about what you're going through, think about what you're losing. And our ears and our eyes and all of our senses get overwhelmed by that suffering and faith needs to just take a step back and say, yeah, that's hard, it's really loud really big, but I am trusting in something bigger, something greater. Faith chooses to look beyond the present circumstances, to believe that there is something more real, that there is a greater plan that is at work. It is certain and it is secure, and we can have joy even in the midst of suffering and struggling. Look at the progress of faith in these verses. Look at what he says is true about his readers. You love Christ even though you don't see him. You believe in Christ. All of this is going on through the midst of suffering, and the result is you are filled with joy, an inexpressible joy. You know, sometimes people come and they Try to share with us something they're excited about. If you're not a sports fan and somebody comes to talk about their favorite team and something over the weekend and you just kind of sit there nodding and smiling, right? Because it's the polite thing to do and you have no idea what they're talking about. Or maybe it's a hobby, you know, somebody up on stage talking about a spaceship or something and you're just kind of like, man, whatever, man. Because we don't get it, right? you ever tried to share your excitement about your faith with somebody who just doesn't get it? Or, or it's hard to put into words. Sometimes I think it's hard to put into words because we haven't thought deeply enough of it about it. But sometimes it's hard because it's just so amazing. How do I sum up the fact that I was lost in my sins, but God sent his son to die on the cross for me, and I'm saved? Well, I guess that's how you can sum it up. I mean, it's relatively short. But to sum up how that changes, how we look at every moment of our lives, how how we look at every circumstance, every relationship. But we need to understand that in some ways it is inexpressible. In other words, we need to kind of understand that our friends and relatives that aren't Christians, they won't completely understand. They won't completely get it. That doesn't mean we should stop talking. Doesn't mean we should beat them up for it. We need to keep showing it to them. Keep showing them the joy. He says in verse 9, For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. How can you have joy in suffering? Remember, you are saved by Jesus Christ. And nothing can take that away from you. Verse 3 talked about having a new birth into a living hope. Verse 4 said we have an inheritance that cannot be touched by changing circumstances. That's the perspective of faith. I am saved through Jesus Christ. We can and must have joy in suffering because we know there is a truth greater than that circumstance. Friends, we need to live with that perspective. Suffering is an expected part of the Christian life. We live in a world that we are out of step with, out of sync with, and the answer to that is to not try to get in step with the world or more in sync with it. This world needs to see something different than what this world has to offer. And if we as Christians seek to avoid suffering by getting in step with the world, or if we think we're going to reach the world by becoming more like them, all we're doing is showing them what they already have. The beauty of the gospel is that it's a different way. Jesus Christ, the King of the world, died in our place and offers eternal salvation to all who believe. And I want to challenge us today as believers. I believe I'm no genius, but I believe that we are facing times much like Peter. I don't want to be the naysayer and the oh, woe is us as Christians, but friends, persecution is here. It will get worse. It's okay. But what are we going to do if it does? Will our response betray the fact that that we lack faith? Or will it provide to this world a shining example of Christians who hold on to joy even through suffering because we believe that our God is greater? The world needs to see that perspective. I want to share one final thought and then we're done. It struck me as I was preparing for this I love what we have here at Orchard. I think it's amazing, the fellowship that we share, the fact that everybody wants to talk to each other. It's hard to quiet you guys down sometimes. I love that. I love the fellowship. I love this building and this property and this place. God has gifted us with so many things. I love when groups get together and help various people out or go work outside on the parking lot or the renovations or whatever it is. I love that. But I also pray that God would help me to remember and help all of us to remember all of that can be lost. Circumstances can change. The fun fellowship, the building, the physical property, it can disappear like smoke. And I know we value these things and I pray we enjoy them. But my fear is But there might be some that are here because of those things. Like the coffee, like the fellowship, like the fun times that we get to spend together. I want to challenge you with the last part of this verse, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Is that true of you? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior? Because without that, all the coffee, all the building, even all the fellowship is meaningless. And one of my greatest fears as a pastor and a leader in a church is that there would be people that would come and sit and enjoy what we have to offer with never accepting Jesus as your Savior. The joy that Peter is talking about here is only available through the knowledge that you have received Jesus Christ and he has saved you forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you. And God, as I think about this wonderful group of people, I am sure that there are those here today that are struggling, suffering, And maybe for some of them, it's even directly because of their faith, and that goes right in line with this passage. I pray, Father, help them to hold on to a joy that is rooted and founded on the gospel of Jesus Christ that nothing can take away. And Father, we also know, outside the context of this passage, we go through suffering and trials for many different reasons. And yet even those you use for your glory and our good. And Father, I lift up before you right now those that may be here that have never received your Son as their Savior. God, we love them. We love hanging out with them. We love spending time with them. We love doing church together and getting together. But God, as I thought about this passage, my heart just breaks to think, are we providing a substitute to the security of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are they missing out on the true joy that comes from you? I pray, Father, today that they would question what they're relying on, what they're trusting in. And may today be the day that they say, beyond everything else, I believe in Jesus, the Son of God, who died to save me from my sins. And I accept him as my Savior. In your powerful name we pray. Amen.